I don't think we've met before, but I'm the referee on this field. Leinster could offer me five mil a year, I wouldn't go. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and a very warm welcome to the 42 Rugby Weekly. Gavin Casey here in the hot seat. Murray Kinsella remains on well-earned leave. So delighted to be joined on the podcast by Gary Doyle, my fellow colleague with 42. Gary, how are you? Quiet day, I'd say. Great day. Yeah, I love days, I guess, Gav. There's plenty uh, plenty to keep us busy. Certainly, there's plenty to talk about. And uh, great, to be, great to be back on the, on the pod, Gav. A, a surprise inclusion along with... Uh, all the guys that have made it into into Gats' squad today as well. No, don't have yourself down as a bolter, Gary. You were always going to be here. There was an air of inevitability about your inclusion this week. Bernard Jackman joins us as always. Uh, Stalworth, Bernard, how are you and how's your day been going? I'd say it's been fairly mad, has it? Yeah, it's been good. It's been busy. Um, Lions tour coincided with my lunch break, so uh, I thought I dragged it out um, longer than it was necessary. But look, it's great to have uh, a bunch of players to, to talk about now and... Um, deliberate over who's lucky and unlucky so i'm sure we're gonna gonna give a due um due process on that yeah 100 we'll get into the lion stuff have a chat with the two lads we're going to chat as well about the somewhat more disappointing action over the weekend uh, just gone uh, and then bernard and i will circle back for a bit more lions chat for the 42 members as well we'll field a few of your questions in a separate members pod members.the42.e if you want to get that extra pod but let's kick off with some of that Lions chat now. And Bernard, I'll start with yourself. Some of those surprise inclusions, Bundy Aki, uh, would have been, I'd say, unexpected by most in Ireland and probably by most outside of Ireland as well. And then, what, three, four players who were can consider themselves unfortunate to miss out. Um, particularly, I guess, the headline exclusion from an Irish point of view being Johnny Sexton. Yeah, I, I, I think Sexton is unlucky. Um, obviously not being fit the the last couple of games um and having some injuries during the six nations as well um it, i'm sure it went against them um but definitely unlucky i think if you want to have a, a a real driving force alongside alan win jones um in terms of a leadership group um he's someone who could have added a lot of value um so yeah disappointed for him um and you know James Ryan obviously and Gary Ringrose are two other high profile ones, but I think both of them are are, are a little bit out of form, um, and that's down to probably not getting a, a good run with um, of games. Obviously uh, James Ryan's had had some concussion uh, in, issues, and uh, Ringrose obviously had that um, uh, that facial injury that that slowed him down a little bit. So I can understand, but you know both those two, um, but they'll be bitterly disappointed. I mean. You know, a year ago, you would have said there were shoe-ins and people were saying James Ryan, um, you know, would who would partner James Ryan in the second row? But he's just missed out due to, I think, probably um, a couple of injuries and maybe, you know, not hitting hitting top form quickly. Obviously, the most recent two games are La Rochelle and Munster where um, he looked a little bit undercooked. So, yeah, tough on him. It is, yeah. Gary, to focus on Sexton for a moment, you could absolutely, as Bernard says, put, uh, the exclusions of Ringrose and Ryan down to form and it's a loss of form on the back of a couple of injuries that has sort of debilitated them or knocked them out of stride really and sometimes it just takes that little bit longer to rediscover that um, that flow to what you're doing on a weekly basis but 
Sexton had form. It's really just down to injury, isn't it? Like, he was arguably the form-out half of the Six Nations, even though he did miss some of it through injury. He was unbelievable against England, probably his best test since 2018. He kicked Ireland a victory against Scotland, so he can feel rightly aggrieved, I'd say, even though the selection overall in the circumstances is probably somewhat understandable because he hasn't played recently. Absolutely. I agree with every point you've made there, Gav. Like, Let's take the first point there. You're talking about what he did in the in the Six Nations. He landed 86% of his shots at goal, which is a higher percentage than any other player in the tournament. So you look at that, and then you add in the other factors that he brings, his desire to win, his tactical intelligence, his defensive strength, which is, let's face it, much better than most fly halves in the world. So when you add all those factors together, and then you think back to the 2017 tour, which turned on the back of his inclusion for the second test, you're you're basically wondering why he didn't make it. Now, there are a couple of reasons why he didn't. If you look at his injury profile this year, he's made five starts for Leinster, and he's come off hurt in four of those, the, the latest of those being the game against Exeter in the quarterfinals. On the back of that, he wasn't there on Sunday when Leinster really need them against La Rochelle. So at 35, he'll turn 36 in a couple of months. His durability must have been a concern for Gatland, and that must have been um, the key reason why he didn't make the squad. But in addition to that, you've got really good players who did make the squad. And when you look right across the names that Gatland has gone with, you're looking at, in my view, the toughest selection a Lions coach has had since 1989 on the basis that you've got four teams of equal or near enough equal ability, which hasn't been the case since the 89 Tour to Australia. So in the 90s, Ireland were rubbish. So it made it really easier to just exclude so many players. Like we had only two tourists on the 93 Tour, with only four in 97. When Ireland got better, Scotland took our place as a sort of the crappy team. So again, it was really easy to, to ignore the Scots. There were no more than three Scots on any touring party in this century until this one. And then today you've got the breakdown of 11 English, 10 Welsh, eight Scots, eight Irish. Gatlin said he was looking at 57 players. So when you put all that into the mix, Gav, you can see why it was so hard for him to come up with the squad that he did. And he even extended it from 36 to 37. So like, I'm not going to go as far as to say I've got sympathy for him, but I can certainly see that it was a tough call. And there were a lot of tough calls that he had to make. Like in England, the big, the big call over there is or the big headline over there is the fact that Kyle Sinclair didn't make it and like Sinclair came off the bench in all three tests on the 2017 tour and he's played more minutes than any other props since the start of 2020 in international rugby and he ranked first for tackles and second for carries amongst props in that period so I mean that's that's a big decision as well like you know it's not it's not purely the Irish guys who are unlucky to miss out there's a number of players who are unlucky no for certain and even if we were saying that James Ryan quite rightly saying I think James Ryan is unfortunate himself to miss out if you can put his exclusion down to form as we've said you could argue CJ Sander I think is actually very unfortunate to miss out because he was in reasonably good form and has been consistently for the last number of years like he kind of doesn't seem to be figuring in that conversation so conversation so much as Ryan and even Ringrose but I would have him up there as one of the more higher profile Irish guys who could be looking at it, feeling a little bit disappointed for themselves as well, Gar. 
I just wonder, the fact that the tour's in South Africa and the fact that Stander's going back there, Gav, is he is that an easy option for for Gatlin to sort of be able to say if there's an injury that he could call him in? I'm just wondering if that's a case. Uh, and it's probably it's it's possibly a case. The other factor again is just how strong the options are. But in terms of is he a player in form again? And I hate to be a complete bore with stats, but seeing as I've uh, seeing as I've done them, I might as well put them out there. He. Uh, he has topped the rankings for carries in four of the past five Nations Championships, and he has made more post-contact metres than any other forward in this year's Championship. So yes, he is a guy in form, and he is very unlucky not to be there. Gary mentions, Bernard, that he wouldn't go as far as to say he has sympathy for Gatland over the difficulty of this selection. You know Johnny Sexton and the kind of person he is, the kind of competitor he is. Do you think he will feel in some ways let down by Gatlin in the sense that as Gary pointed out and as everybody saw in 2017 he helped to salvage a tour from the wreckage really in his inclusion then and he does seem to be a guy who uh, appreciates loyalty certainly within a playing squad as a as a leader so do you think he would have expected something along those lines from Gatlin or would he have been more realistic about it given his injuries in very recent times? Yeah, look, and I think he he obviously would have ho- he obviously hoped he he get in and and past uh, past success would have carried weight. Um, uh, look, at I I think it's a big mistake to bring Finn Russell ahead of Johnny Sexton, even with Johnny having um, some injuries um, and injury concerns about him. I think if Finn Russell ends up being our starting Test uh, line ten, uh, we're dead. We're dead. I, I just think the way Scott South Africa defend. Um, he will run into all kinds of trouble and, and put others into trouble as well. So uh, I, I I don't see the logic in bringing Finn, Finn Russell uh, um ahead of him. And yeah, so I, I do feel I do feel feel sorry for Johnny in this situation. Um, but I, I I totally think it's down to maybe worries about his durability, and it's just really unfortunate that he's had these couple of knocks recently. Obviously, having to go off early against Exeter, there would have been you know eyes on him in that game. It's interesting, Neil Jenkins spoke about he's never seen him kick as well as, as he has this season. Um, it must be very close. And, and knowing Johnny, he'll he'll feel sorry for himself for about 24 hours and then he'll look to regroup and, and try and, I suppose, play as much as he can over the next month and a half. And, and I'm sure he'll be one of those players on standby and he could yet have a have a role to play, but it'll be a difficult um, thing to follow. I mean, he, he would want to be on this tour and he'd want to be part of helping helping the Lions, you know, win a series in South Africa. So um, it's difficult, but I do think the Finn Russell one is, uh, it's it's a mistake um, in, in terms of picking him over over Johnny. One last one on 10. I don't want to make it a, an entirely Sexton adjacent or related conversation. Uh, just to stick with yourself, Birch, if you think that bringing Russell over Sexton is a mistake, and we're talking about form dictating a lot of this, is bringing Owen Farrell a mistake? He has no form to speak of. Or, to, like, I'll correct myself, he actually has pretty bad form, really, to speak of at the moment. Yeah, he, look, he hasn't been playing. He didn't play well for England, but England didn't play well um, in the Six Nations. And there's reasons why. Um, Gatlin still has gone with six or five Saracens players. So, um, you know, they've been playing the championship. Um, he's given he's given them a credibility based on, on their past performances and I, I actually don't have any issue with any of those Saracens players playing I don't have any issue with on Farrell going I think um, we know what he brings he's very like Sexton in terms of being a driver of things off field and um, I think 
the, the difference in, by the time the Lions tour comes around is he'd have been playing rugby every week. Okay, you can argue the toss about the level of it, um, but it'll be at least be game time, and I would expect him to bounce back as the likes of Elliot Daly will and and Atoje etc. So, um, I wouldn't have concerns about far you know at all. Gary, you're a man whose phone book is bulging to the point that it's actually protruding from your screen there. So had you any idea or had you caught wind at all that Bundiaki would be that surprise inclusion? No, no, not at all. Uh, I'd say Bundiaki was as surprised as everyone else. That's, that's the, the biggest call uh, from an Irish perspective uh, of the guys that are traveling. Like, I just didn't see that coming at all. I mean, would you put him, if you were naming the Irish team tomorrow, would you, would you put him in it? Not personally, but that's not to say he's not an excellent player. Yeah, no, he's well, he he was an excellent player. I don't think he has been excellent this season. Injuries have certainly got have affected him. Uh, he's he's had a suspension to serve as well. He hasn't played as well this year as he has the last three stroke four years for Ireland. Um, but nonetheless, he can still. The funny thing is, even though having having just been critical of him. You can still see the logic in why he's been selected because, firstly, he's a big, big game player. Secondly, his confidence is ironclad, no matter no matter how poor his form is. And thirdly, he's he's a physical presence which you're going to need against South Africa. So I can see the logic in why why he is gone, but it is one that I certainly wasn't anticipating. Birch, can you see the logic in on Aki's inclusion? Yeah, I think that's. Look, historically, he's gone for um, that big physical 12 um, all the way through his career, whether, you know, it's Jamie Roberts or um, everywhere, wherever he's been, Was, um, uh, Waikato, etc. So uh, I can think, you know, obviously Bundy is, Robbie Henshaw's in great form. Uh, and I'd imagine he's, he will be ahead of, of Bundy um, as, a, as a 12. But I think Bundy gives him that profile that he likes to have as a go-to. And obviously with Manu Tuolagi out with injury, um, there was a lot of rumours maybe Manu was going to be a wild card and, and just pick him now and in the hope that he becomes true. But um, Gats hasn't taken that risk and he's he's gone for Bundy as that type of player. So he, the thing about Bundy is, and it's brilliant for Connacht, it's brilliant for him, um, is he has a different profile than all the other centres that Gats has picked. And I think um, that's a smart thing. And But also Gats has gone for that type of 12 um, a lot over his career so yeah, yeah I think that's that's probably why he's in Who would you actually anticipate playing at 13 looking at that squad Bert? It's a yeah it's a, it's, it's a really interesting one um, I, I, I'm not sure like Chris Harris for me it's a big call I know he's had a, he had a good comp, uh, a good tournament um, I, I'm actually thinking that he might go Bundy and Robbie is Robbie 13 or possibly he might go he might go far the 12 and then Henshaw thirteen, Farrell at twelve, yeah, he might go Farrell at twelve, but that would be, yeah, he might, he might do that as well. Then, yeah, I don't know. I think he'll go for size and, and defensive yeah. uh, strength, and that, for me, that would be Farrell at ten, and then you know, at two, or I know Farrell plays twelve, I uh, play twelve quite a lot, but I would go for two bigger centers. So yeah, Bunny might come in as a, as a starting twelve with, with Robbie at thirteen. Some other key inclusions from an Irish point of view. Guys that, I guess, all Irish rugby fans were hoping would be included based on form, based on having very good seasons. I'm thinking of Tyg Byrne, Ian Henderson, Andrew Portwood is in there. 
Uh, we kind of suspected, obviously, Ty Furlong would be in there. Um, who am I missing? Jack Conan, another big one. Like his recent kind of, not resurgence, but recent... Well, resurgence is a good enough word because he had a terrible, uh, terrible luck with injury, Gav, and... Like he didn't come into the Six Nations squad as a starter until until midway through the campaign, and I think the key moment that turned it turned Ireland's season and it also turned people's perception of Conan was that throw from Hurin in the line out against England. Like England were dominant up in that Six Nations test right right up until that moment, and that was the that was the moment that turned the game and a mixture of Conan's footwork, his his athleticism. I can say that I can say that word comfortably, and uh, his handling skills to take that ball to tail of the line and then drop it perfectly into Keith Harris's pass as he arrived into the gap that Conan had created. That for me is the time when Gatlin says, "No, this guy can execute a game plan perfectly. Take it, transfer it from the training ground onto the pitch. Do it in a big time environment." and and like obviously, it's not one. It's not. It's the one moment that stands out, but it's backed up by a number of really, really good performances. And I think Gatland has looked at his back row, and he's decided he needs a bit of variety, uh, needs a bit of pace and a bit of skill. And like, there's absolutely no doubt that Conan is a really, really clever footballer and a really talented player. And also, he's not a kid anymore. He's 28, and while it's a been a bit of a disaster for him to have such uh, career damaging in- injuries. The fact is now that he's really fresh coming into this land summer. And that's, again, a big, big factor because there are going to be a number of players that are going to hit the wall given that training, pre-season training started last July. So they're going to be in their 12th, 13th month of the season. Whereas with Conan, he's, he's been fresh until December. He's come into form and... I know it's not the, particularly in England and and in Wales and Scotland, they're probably looking at this inclusion and going, well, why why is he on the plane? But I think it's a a really really smart call and a really brave call by Gatland, particularly because Billy Funipolo isn't going. Like that's that's extraordinary to think that. Certainly is. We will circle back to Lions chat as I said for the forty two members later on. Birch and I will stick around. But Gary, while we have you, uh, I want to chat Ulster and. With a, a native Ulster man, and I would say an irate Ulster man after the weekend just gone. What? Is there any other kind than an irate Ulster man? <laughs> Passionate, I should have if, said. Passionate. If, if there is, let if there is, let me know. Having having lived there so long. Go on then. I'll let you off the leash. What What did you make of it? What was your kind of immediate reaction, and what is your reaction a few days later when you've had a chance to give it more yeah. thought and process it? Yeah. It's it sort of sums up the last ten years of Ulster's recent history. Um, oh, like I mean, the game was in—I wouldn't say the game was in the bag, but they were certainly in control of the game. And there were three moments in the second half, Gav, which kind of sums up Ulster in big matches. Uh, you had Robert Balakoon spilling the ball around the halfway line and then getting smothered as he as he sought to regather it. That was a penalty to Leicester. They scored, a tr- they scored seven points off that. Uh, Ian Henderson gave away a needless penalty at the Rock, again around halfway, again Leicester score. And then uh, Albie Matheson put the ball out in the full just after Ulster had uh, scored a try through Timney to get back into it. So those three moments led to 17 points to Leicester. Ulster lose by nine. Now, again, without being a complete bore, 
if you go back through Ulster's recent history over the last 10 years, you're looking at five quarterfinals in the in the Heineken Cup that they've lost. You're looking at uh, the semi-finals of the Challenge Cup. Then last year, the final of the Pro 14. Um, like these add up and you begin to wonder, is it a psychological issue? Because if you continue to lose big games, yet your regular season record is really impressive. Like also won 14 out of 16 matches in the Pro 14 this season. So they're clearly a team that's that's moving in the right direction. But when you're losing big matches, the question has to be why. And really, like their, their match tomorrow is, is it's must win, even though it's the only only the second game of the campaign because it's only a six game regular uh, season tournament in the Rainbow Cup. If you lose for a second time, that's it. It's it's over. Like you know, and there's just the 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 big word uh, if you were if you were an Ulster supporter. But you must be feeling after that game is frustration because the first half they played really, really well. And there's absolutely no doubt that the team is in a much better place than it was uh, on the back of uh, Dan McFarland's work. And his and since basically since he came in, they've become much better. They've become much fitter. Uh, they've become much more consistent. But they're still losing semifinals and they're still losing these tight, tight matches. And the other thing, sorry, the final point I'd like to make is that they've lost six games this season, twice to Leicester in the Pro 14, once to Connacht in the Rainbow Cup, they lost to Toulouse and Gloucester in the Champions Cup, and then the Leicester defeat. In all six games, they had the lead at some point of those matches. So, like, you can say, right, that's just a meaningless stat. But after a while, when you keep losing big matches, it's not meaningless, and it's probably meaningful. So, like, they say they had a harsh review and honest words were spoken, but People don't want to hear that anymore. They want to see. They want to see that difference. Those words turn into actions on the pitch. Yeah, Birch. We were saying before, and we'll have a kind of a bigger picture chat about the two European games. We don't necessarily have to go into the several incidents from each, but just to pick up on Gary's final point there about Ulster having leads and surrendering them. That this was a very dramatic and accentuated example of that phenomenon, if you like. And it did seem as though there was a change in mindset or maybe a change literally in strategy in that second half. They clearly kicked the ball more. They didn't kick it well, which cost them. But I, I wondered, and I, I tried to ask Stephen Ferris this on the members pod earlier in the week, probably made a balls of my question. Here I go again. But I wonder w- with that switch, if you think it happened, when you are kicking contestables and playing that little bit more conservatively, if somewhere subconsciously, you cede a little bit of the physical control you had on the game as well like by playing conservatively with ball do you lose a small bit of that edge they had in the first half because we saw probably their line speed slow down that little bit in the second half and we just saw Leicester get on top of them physically and I wonder was there a causal connection between the two you know yeah I don't know if it's if it's mental or are they just lacking that quality to be honest uh like it goes back for me when they came to the Aviva to play Leinster. Um, I'm not sure if it was the semi-final or quarter-final. Quarter-final, um, yeah. Quarter-final. And the game, like they actually had a chance of beating Leinster, which would have been uh, a phenomenal victory because they came in as massive underdogs. McFarland and his coaching staff designed, uh, you know, you'd say the perfect game plan. And yet they found a way. To, and everyone praised Leinster for finding a way to win and, and they deserve credit for that. But Ulster, for me, found a way to lose. And since then, I've, I've just seen them fall... At the, you know, at the big hurdles, so whether that's losing to, to lose at home, 
you know, in, in, the, in the Champions Cup um, in, in the early stage this year. Um, obviously, you know, they didn't, uh, they had a chance to get ahead of Leinster and knock Leinster out at the end of the Pro 14, or Pro, uh, yeah, Pro 14 just a couple of months ago because Leinster lost to Connacht. Ulster actually had a chance to, to, to get ahead of them and be in a final against Munster without without even having to beat Leinster if they had picked up enough bonus points and they, and they managed um, to blow that. Uh, so I just, uh, I don't know if it's if it's psychological. Obviously, they've come from a very dark place. Um, you know, obviously, uh, around the time John Gibbs was there, their form dropped off massively. And there is progress. Um, but I don't, like, I think we can read too much into their form in the Pro 14 in terms of them being a, a top two team or a top four team because... We know that that doesn't really match up to probably the the upper um, levels in in the Gallagher Premiership or the, or the top fourteen. And like the problem is Leicester aren't a top three team at the moment in 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 England. They're definitely on the way back, and I fancy them because I thought they had you know a strong scrum, they were physical, and they had a good maul, and that that was going to be enough to beat Ulster. But um, they're certainly not a, a Bristol, an Exeter, or 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 Saracens when they get back into it, um, and. Yeah, so it is worrying for for them. I mean, there's the problem is now Marcel Cotty is gone, and um, you know the replacement for him is Nakawara, who's a bit of a punt for me. He's gone backwards, obviously. The Nakawara that went to Racing, um, and was part of a, an Olympic sevens team is, is a different story than the one we're seeing now for for struggling to make the team in Glasgow. So, uh, you know, maybe he's not going to have be as influential as Marcel has been. Um, okay, there's some good young players coming through, but I thought Ferris's interview actually was. Look, it's harsh, but I, I agree with a huge amount of it um, in terms of maybe lacking identity. And it, it probably feeds into the whole, you know, where we're going to go with Leinster and Irish rugby, I think, where I'm going to go anyway, is that if the other provinces are just getting players, not, not all the players, but if they're getting um, four or five players in their starting team who can make the Leinster team, Unless Leinster are doing a very bad job coaching them or there's been an injury or or you've improved their S&C, it's very, it's very difficult to see how they're going to then pass out Leinster, which is what they all should be trying to do. Um, so, and if you can't pass out Leinster and you're not getting closer to them, are you good enough to go and win trophies elsewhere? Probably not, because Leinster aren't winning trophies elsewhere. So um, it's that's the challenge for me, is that they do, you know, there's probably not the same identity in Munster or, or Ulster as there was in the past. Maybe that's just modern rugby. Um, but uh, at the moment, at the moment, it's not getting Ulster where they want to go and their fans want to go and that's been successful. And I think that this Challenge Cup was a phenomenal opportunity because they're probably not going to be back in the Challenge Cup for a while because of the, the quality of the Pro 14. They're always going to be qualifying for Champions Cup. So it was just a great chance to, to win a silverware. And, and they're probably not going to win silverware in the Pro 14 because... They're not as good as Leinster, so um, yeah, it's uh, it, I, I, I think for Dan McFarland, for the players and for the fans, um, they'll definitely feel this was a big opportunity. Can I missed. bring you in, Gary, on the word identity, which I know infuriates a lot of people. I, I, I do think it has a relevance. I, I saw when Ferris brought it up, he listed say an Ulster pack minus Ian Henderson, a likely starting pack minus Ian Henderson, and all of those players would have been say recruited some of them irish but uh they're say non-academy products the same with the starting halfbacks and that's where he brought identity into it and i understand that particularly in the modern era people's bone of contention with that would be well what does it matter where your player 
is born or um, what does it really matter if the players are actually good that's fair enough but I think it's indisputable that it does help particularly in the provinces if you have a strong contingent of players who have come up through the province and who know what it kind of means to play for the province and, and have that relationship with fans because they were themselves at a point fans of that same team it's not that it can't work if you're recruiting players from all over the place we look at La Rochelle look at some of the French clubs but of course if you have a cohort like a, a strong nucleus of players who know the province inside out it is of benefit I, I, I don't think that can be disputed can it no but Ulster do have a lot of players that are that were born and bred in Ulster who are playing for them, like Maggie Laurie, McCluskey, um, okay, Balakoon, Stockdale. You go through, Tom O'Toole isn't from Ulster, but he moved to Ulster when he was 16, so he came through the system. You you go through, you, you're thinking of other players like uh, Kyle McCall, who's who's in the squad as well. You, you, Identity is a strange one, okay, Cause, and particular, particularly for Ulster rugby, because... When I was growing up, there was the sense that Ulster was the prod. Ulster rugby was for prodies only, and if you were, if you weren't a prod, you didn't support Ulster. I think that's changed completely uh, in the last twenty years. I think Ulster as a place has changed in the last twenty years. Anytime I go back up home, you you just you don't get the sense of them and us that you would have had when I was growing up, and you certainly you knew which streets to walk down and which towns to avoid when I was growing up. You don't get, that still exists to an extent, but there's a lot more uh, basically cross-community support for the Ulster team now. Um, so in the 1980s, like people, what people forget uh, is that before Munster had their phenomenal run and before Leinster replaced Munster as the, as the top team in Ireland, when I was growing up, Ulster by distance was the top province. Like the in '84, when the Aussies won their Grand Slam, they lost to beat the four home nations. But the the word around Ulster was they lost the fifth nation because they lost Ulster 15-13 on that tour, and that was a phenomenal Wallabies team in '84. Uh, Munster didn't beat Ulster from '81 to '94. Now I stand corrected on that, but but more or less. There was 10, Ulster won 10 Interpros in a row. So you can, nobody can doubt that they had an identity then. I still think they have a really strong identity. Uh, I, I still think they play with an incredible amount of pride. And it doesn't come down to your birthplace. It comes down to your attitude, in my view. And I think the attitude of every Ulster player when they play for Ulster is really impressive. But I think what's really unimpressive is their inability to see out winning positions. Like there were 10 points up in Gloucester. Uh, on 65 minutes and they lost they were leading against Connacht by 10 points uh, and Connacht were down to 14 men and Ulster lost they were leading at half time by 11 points against Leicester and they lost and they were leading against Toulouse in the second half of that game and they lost and again we'll go back to the earlier matches against uh, against Leinster they were leading both times and they lost the match that uh, the Burts was referencing the game in, in uh, I think it was the 2019 quarterfinal against Leinster in the Aviva. Stockdale, that was when Stockdale failed to, to ground the ball in the end goal area. Like, you know, like they, that's a lack of ruthlessness. I think that's the issue. Uh, having said that, I'm not living there anymore, whereas Stephen Ferris is closer to, 
to the squad and would and is living in Belfast, so he he would have a stronger sense of how people feel. But I did do a piece on this a couple of years ago, and I spoke to the chairman of the Ulster Supporters Club, and his view was that it comes down to how these players behave, the attitude they show, and the desire they show. And I don't think there's a lack of desire in the Ulster team. Maybe there is a lack of quality. Um, but they've also been unlucky. They've also been unlucky, Gav, in the sense that Katsia has been there five years, but he only played 57 times because he's injured. Carter has been there two years, and he's only played 1,062 minutes. So that, they're factors as well. They needed those guys in those big matches. Yeah, just to come in on that, uh, when I was talking about identity, I, 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 sorry, I didn't explain myself well. I definitely wasn't talking about religion, um, or and I wasn't trying to be uh, just focused on Ulster. I was trying to talk about... The macro of, of Irish rugby, and um, uh, my point is, is that like Leinster, um, Leinster at the moment, uh, the reason Leinster are strong, in my opinion, is there's a very competitive environment because of player numbers, because of private schools, because of youths, um, etc. To get into the academy, right? There's a funnel, so you have all these 15, 16, 17, 18 year olds fight, 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 fight to get into the academy, okay? And and it's very difficult, um. Once you get into that academy, obviously you got to push through to become a, a senior player. And because Leinster have so many Irish internationals, they play a lot of players and they play with other good players. So they, they look really good and they're playing against teams who are uh, inferior to them. So they, they look brilliant, right? So you have a good, very good chance then of actually being a professional rugby player, right? Um, and once you become a professional rugby player in Leinster, um, you're probably going to be a professional rugby player in Ireland for the rest of your career. That's the trend at the moment, okay? If you don't make it in Leinster, you're going to get picked up by Munster, Ulster or Connacht and have a professional career. My point is, is that uh, competition uh, generally creates the diamonds, pressure creates diamonds. And unfortunately at the moment, because Ulster aren't producing enough players, Munster aren't producing enough players, um, and Connacht are, are a little bit different in terms of traditionally, they've always tapped into the Leinster players, but they're, they're fighting to try and, you know, make sure they produce their own players as well. That the deal scenario for me is, in terms of making the Irish teams better, is that if you can't make it in, in, in your own province, um, that it's highly likely you're going to get a contract somewhere else because there's enough players coming through your own pathway, right? So I'm not saying that those players who leave Leinster aren't entitled to make a, a, have a professional career. But imagine they went, they couldn't, that they weren't able to get into Ulster because Ulster was already so strong, right? And and they went to play in, uh, Ed Byrne, or Brian Burns, for example, playing for Bristol every week and doing brilliantly well right so in theory he can play 20 games a year for bristol and come back to leinster a better player right so he's still a he's still in our in our in our, in our um, talent pool he's just we've got an extra spot the problem at the moment is that when leinster a player moves from leinster and he goes to munster ulster or connacht well we, we know that he's probably uh not going to be in, in international right because he's left because of game time or i know there's guys like conway who've who've done the be, managed to do both but in general that they're going to another province and take up game time there uh, but yet they're not going to actually help Ireland win games because they're not that level and then they're not they're not going to help the, the provinces they go to sorry they're trying to help but it's unlikely they're going to help them get better than Leinster which is obviously what they they need to try and do so that's my issue in terms of that's what I meant in terms of identity I think it's better if the four provinces are all producing an, enough talent that it's not just a case of oh we need a we need another lock you know who's fifth choice in Leinster? Ring up David Nusafora and ask, can they get him? But that's 
for me that they're never going to catch up and Ireland Ireland by um, extenuation of that aren't going to be able aren't going to have those X factor players those match winner players that we see at this level we see at this level in, in knockout stage whether it's Montpellier against Bath whether it's um, you know Leicester against Ulster, Leicester against Ulster La Rochelle against Leinster those type of players who can help you win games are unlikely to come from players who are let go by Leinster because if they're good enough to win games Leinster won't let them go do you know what I mean? And that's that's my issue about identity is that we're we're moving players from Leinster, um, and and it's great for them they can still continue to be professional players, but I don't see how that can be a. I don't think if you're building a strategy in terms of uh, becoming a, a high performing team that your strategy is to to con- consistently take players who can't get game time elsewhere. Final word on that from yourself, Garrett. Before we let you go, you've got a school run to do, but I I guess if you look at going back to say an Ulster pack and if there are only one or two players from Ulster in it and maybe I didn't express this clearly either again there's absolutely nothing wrong with that if you've a pack full of good players but it is probably an indication that you aren't producing enough players on your own and and that is probably not quite sustainable for all of the reason for all of the reasons Bernard has outlined and I, I think it's what Ferris was trying to get at as well was that these are all fine players in their own right. They're they're given everything for the Ulster jersey. I don't think that can be questioned at all. Um, but that it is probably like the fact that they are needed is a symptom of some shortcomings beneath the the surface, if you know what I mean. That in a long term sense will hold you back ultimately. Yeah, well, I can't I can't disagree with with uh, either the point you've made or the point Bernard made on that. It is. It is clear that Leinster's production line is just way superior to everybody else's in Ireland. And I don't think there's an easy answer to this, though, because the Leinster school system is is different to every other school system in Ireland as well. And a lot of these players are being presented on a plate uh, at 17. And albeit Leinster are doing a good job in development thereafter, like, you know, um, I don't know what the answer is, Gav, because you can't change the school system in in Northern Ireland and you can't I suppose what you what you have to do then is, is start creating players a different way and come up be inventive and and go to the clubs go beyond the school system to help that out but I don't I don't have the answer at, at this moment then yeah look I think that's that's exactly what hasn't happened because there's been that security blanket of tapping into someone else's resource there hasn't been a massive focus and look at exactly what you have in your area. It doesn't have to, they can't copy Leinster. I 100% agree with you, Gary. The private mm-hmm. school system is unique uh, in terms of numbers and the, the level of investment that goes in there from the schools. But Munster, you know, Munster had something very unique in Limerick um, that they've let slip away. Okay. Uh, and, and again, you know, can they actually create a, a development pathway that's unique to Munster? Can Connacht do the same? Can Ulster do the same? And it doesn't matter how you get there as long as you get there. And in high performance, in, in elite sport, you have to keep, you can't keep going, oh, we don't have this, we don't have that. You just need to find the solution to help you win. And uh, at the moment, I, I think it's too easy to tap into Leinster. Um, and there has for five or six years, I think we've taken our eye off the ball provincially, and whether that's the IRFU's fault or, or the provincial fault, um, in terms of the the production line of local talent Gary thanks a million we'll let you go well Bernard on that very topic then about high performance and 
the you, well your uh, reasoning that you can't continue talking about what you don't have um, there has been a lot of discussion in the aftermath of Leinster's defeat in La Rochelle about budgets <laughs> and resources at La Rochelle's disposal versus Leinster's it went from Jerry Thornley saying that La Rochelle have say twice the budget of Leinster or Leinster's is half their size or something along those lines to Matt Williams talking about it being three four times the size of what Leinster have and uh, it's already true is it yeah I heard uh, La Rochelle don't bother using towels in the showers they use cash just to put in the so much money um it's uh, i find it unbelievable i find it unbelievable that we're, we're 20 years competing with the french in europe and um you know some pundits or, or journalists actually still don't understand or or what i don't know what or are they trying to protect our view i don't know why you would use a, a club's overall turnover um as as the budget for for players uh so the salary cap in france is 11.5 million um and it's very strict. Uh, it's incredibly strict. So there was probably a couple of clubs. Toulon back in the heyday, you know, were rumoured to be breaking the cap. Never got caught. And uh, we know Saracens broke the Premiership um, salary cap. But, but it, my understanding, speaking to agents and, and coaches uh, and players there, is that it's pretty much accepted that no one's breaking at the moment. And it's there's clubs who want to break it. So um, clubs who have rich benefactors would love to break it to bring success but they actually can't it's it's not worth the the risk so um 11.5 million uh, is would compare i would say very closely to what leinster spend um and we don't know we don't know for sure uh, what the exact figure is but if you sat down and worked out um all the players they've contracted i don't think you'd be a million miles away from that figure so to say that we were beaten by a team who have twice the budget or three times the budget so what what teams do every year is they have to actually publish their budgets um, and get it signed off by the LNR before a season before the season starts, or else you don't get your license. So they have to uh, show exactly where they're spending their money. And that, like my my budget in Grenoble uh, was three point eight million for players, and our overall budget, the one that people are uh, seem to think is a budget uh, for players, uh, was was nineteen point eight million. Okay, so. In terms of expenditure, everything that goes in and out of the club for a year was 19.8 million, but we were spending 3.8 on, on players. Uh, so we were way off the salary cap. The salary cap when I was there was about 9.5. Um, and, you know, we would have known what we were competing with in terms of other clubs who were fighting for survival. Some of them would be spending, you know, uh, 3.6 and some would be spending 5, whatever. But the teams who were spending 8 and 9, they were up the top of the table and the teams who spent under 5 were down the bottom. That's just the way it was. Um and that's that's the reality of it. So I don't think it's a financial issue. Um, it's not. I think it's a case of how Leinster, uh, probably how they have to prioritise Irish players. Um, and obviously Team Ireland is a huge focus and we keep hearing everything's towards the national team. And this model is the best model in the world. Uh, unfortunately, at the moment, I, I, don't think, I don't think the four provinces should be as reliant on that subsidy type mentality that you get from team ireland so the money we get from the six nations goes back to the provinces i think that the provinces aren't bad at actually uh generating their own revenue you know they've all got good sponsors they all have um decent number of season ticket holders they're all able to tap into um the corporate market etc so they, they they are way more self-reliant than the welsh regions for example or the, or the scottish 
the Scottish franchises or the Italian franchises. So um, I think it's important that they have a chance of being successful in their own right. Um, and to be successful in their own right, I think they should have more autonomy around uh, their recruitment and be able to put together a squad that's capable of winning whatever or, or getting to whatever level they want to get to. So if it's if it's Connacht, you know, if it's to qualify for Europe every year uh, and, you know, get to a final or win a Pro 14, well, then it should be given within limits to the resources um, to do that, not just in terms of financial resources, but in terms of um, uh, facilitation, in terms of non-Irish qualified players, if that's what they need in a certain position. And if you look at Leinster, because we're talking about them and, and against La Rochelle, um, Leinster had one non-Irish qualified player in their in their in their squad um, this year in, in Scott Fardy. Um, he was on the bench, uh, so you had a, a full Irish qualified team to start, and that's brilliant for Team Ireland. Um, but you would have to say, I, I would have to say, it, it wasn't a help to Leinster in terms of trying to to beat La Rochelle, who could call on you know um, an Argentinian hooker as 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 backup hooker, um, uh, Liebenberg, uh, Victor Vito. Um, uh, Carbarlo, Ohio West, Botia, uh, both wingers were 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 non uh, non French, um, and obviously Antonio is someone who played for France but was was brought in as a as a project player quite young. So they they and Will Skelton obviously is the name that everyone is thinking about as well. So they obviously helped the Brice Doolans, the Police on the Gordons, the Aldrichs, um, put be part of a, a historic day for 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 La Rochelle getting to the European Cup final potentially winning one and I think the the effects of that um can can probably help La Rochelle hopefully over the next five or six years particularly under Raj you know become a real force on a consistent basis in French and, and European rugby as we want well I certainly want the Irish provinces to be that force in European rugby and, and people will say oh Leinster they had injuries and they had injuries and that definitely affected it but I think when you look at so 2009 we won the going back to go forward in 2008 we won the Magnus League um, for Leinster we had a very strong team we had Malcolm O'Kelly uh, you know Keith Leeson Jamie Heaslip was coming through Brian O'Driscoll Shane Horgan Gervin Dempsey etc etc we had a very good squad and yes the, the powers that be decided we were going to push for a European Cup and we needed backup and we needed support so they went out that summer and signed Rocky Elsom Eason Asiwa and CJ Van der Linden right so like when those three guys walked into the dressing room in preseason, we also had Felipe Condoponi and Chris Whitaker there at the time, two top end internationals. Okay, I know uh, which captain Australia. He, he the many caps he had, he had over sixty caps, I think. Um, and you know a quality operator, and Felipe was was a genius. And then we brought in three more, um, and we had Stan Wright as well, actually as well. So we had six, I would say, you know, top end guys who mixed in with what we had gave us a fighting chance that we won a European Cup. And then, obviously, Leinster signed. Rocky went back. They signed Nathan Hines. And he was good enough to be in the team every week, Scottish international. Um, he played a big part in Leinster winning uh, another European Cup, maybe two. And then Brad Thorne for a season came in. Um, you know, a world-class player and helped Leinster, I think, beat Ulster in, in, in that final. Um, and I think since then, I think, obviously... Ulster brought in Kutsia, which is a phenomenal sign. Ulster had Ruan Pinar. Um, you know, Connacht brought in Bundy at the time under Pat, and that was a that was a big signing um, uh, for them. Munster have obviously gone big with, with Delande and and, uh, and Snyman. And I, and I admire them. I, I admire their ambition. And if I was a Munster player, I'd be absolutely delighted 
that they've done that because they could be the point of difference in terms of helping them win silverware. Um, so I think we've become way too on on the foreign players um, and not understand how the benefit that can have in terms of helping our provinces um, overachieve or, or achieve their, their potential and the influence that and the, that can have on the team and when they go to play for Ireland, the confidence you can have having won a European Cup. Can you, you know, because at the moment, let's be honest, I, I don't think you would say the Irish team are high on confidence. Okay. And what's that coming from? Is it coming from, you know, poor results at, at, at international level or inconsistent results at international level? Yeah, maybe. But also the fact that I think, you know, I think every dog in the street knows Leinster should win the European Cup. Or sorry, the Pro 14 every year. Um, anyway, because they spend the most, the most depth, etc. But we haven't been able to win the European Cup uh, since 2018 in Ireland. Uh, and I think that can affect losing to Saracens, losing to La Rochelle, um, can definitely affect the mindset of the players. And someone like James Ryan, right? So James Ryan's a top-end player. Um, he's obviously disappointed to miss out the lines today. Can you imagine him playing alongside Will Skelton? How would he be? No, but you, you know what I mean? And, well, and that's, the, that's the challenge. Well, my, my this is a, going back to the game specifically, uh, and selection is a completely different conversation. I, I'm aware I'm taking this on a brief tangent, but I as soon as I saw Ryan starting alongside Toner, I thought that's not going to go well, purely because Ryan is warming his way back to form after a relatively long-term absence. And... You know, Toner isn't the sort of dominant force you need next to you to ride on his coattails a little bit and, and start to build that confidence yourself, you know. Whereas if you are paired with somebody, look, Leinster don't have Will Skelton, but it just, from the off, that seemed a little bit off to me and Ryan was fairly quiet. When, you, when you're, when you you know yourself, like having played in a front row, but when you're playing in a unit, like as two locks, when the guy next to you is playing out of his skin, you're going to start playing out of your skin more than likely. Toner is an excellent player. He's been an unbelievable servant, but I didn't think it was the right game for him, and there, therefore, Ryan suffered a little bit as a result. You know? Yeah, and and that's the that's the the reality of it at the highest level. Um, one player who who is you know um, past his best or, or struggling for form um, can can get like look, look the opposition look for cracks and they look for they look for potential weaklings on the day and they, and they expose that and and that's the. Look, I don't think Devon was the right call. I was shot. I was. I said it last week in the pod. I, I didn't think I would have started Fardy. Um, I would have started Fardy, and even though his form isn't brilliant, I think he's he, he would have enjoyed that challenge, and and he's physically stronger than than Devon. Um, uh, even even at the even at the moment, so I think that was a mistake. And then I think when Reese Reese Ruddock gets injured early. I think you bring on you bring on Fardy first. Um, I think Brian Baird is still learning his straps as a six, um, and uh, I think you keep him for impact later on. But look at those are decisions that are that are made in hindsight's twenty twenty vision. But I, I think as well, if you're only going to go with one non Irish qualified, um, and you recontract someone like Scott Fardy who has been phenomenal for Leinster and a brilliant signing, I think. And again, it's it's hindsight. Um, I think you've got to make sure when you recontract him, he's going to be good enough to start those big games. And he's going to give you something you can't get. This isn't about him. The, if you're only going to go for one foreigner, you take a risk, obviously, with injury. Um, but if barring injury, they need to give you something different than you can get with your other 58 Irish qualified players. And that's, that's, probably, um, that's probably something I'd say that they may, on reflection when they review it, 
maybe and look, look, I can see why they would keep him because he's been brilliant. But um, it, it, I, I just think I think we're too light. We're too light on non-Irish qualifying. That was a miscalculation. It happens, but let's call a spade a spade. If you have one non-Irish qualified guy who has been a, a, a talisman over the last couple of years and you get to the most important game of your season and you don't feel as though he warrants a starting position in your team, then you've, you've gotten it slightly wrong. It's no crime. Yeah, happens all the time. Everyone makes mistakes. And But let's talk about it then from our point of view. You've mentioned a couple of times we're talking in hindsight and I think that's important to stress as well. We've probably all miscalculated this a little bit because if we're here uh, criticising a lot of what Leinster are doing and it's listen it's we're criticising kind of performance and, and macro stuff after the fact then we have to accept that in advance of it we didn't think we would have we would be having this conversation and maybe we overvalued a little bit of what Leinster were doing and didn't see these issues coming down the tracks you know like we're <laughs> not that we're culpable in it but we are caught by surprise so we're not I don't think we're being overly critical in in saying that Leinster should have seen a couple. No, absolutely not. And, and the area that they got exposed against Saracens more than anything else in the Viva was the scrum. We saw signs that the scrum had improved, and I think it was a key penalty just after half time, um, where La Rochelle got got a, a second shove and they won a penalty. But in general, it wasn't the scrum that cost Leinster the game. It was the collision points and. You know, defensively they couldn't stop La Rochelle on the gain line, and attacking wise they couldn't find any space. So, um, and I would say the other part of how they'd be hard themselves their view is that they didn't have a plan B to try and avoid you know those heavy collisions off nine, um, which worked for them in the Pro 14, and uh, in fairness worked against Exeter, um, and Leinster probably under probably. Too many Leicester players didn't perform on the day, but I still think, I think that we'd all agree there was a power deficit there, and it's the same power deficit that we saw against Saracens in Newcastle. We saw against Saracens to a lesser extent in in, in the Viva, even though it was the scrum was the big weakness. Um, and as pundits, we we over uh, we overcompensated for the Exeter win. We you know we thought Leinster were were too strong, um, and and they weren't. Yeah, they, they weren't, and, and I think that. Looking at it now, and again, um, I think that the problem for Leinster is they invest so much in keeping that kind of mid-layer uh, strong. The, the the guys who go out in a, on a on a Friday night in in November and and put forty on 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 whoever in the Pro Fourteen, um, which is off. They're often lots of internationals, right? So if you've been captain Ireland, you're going to be on a, a very good salary. And and um, the problem is that they keep a lot of those. So their spend is being spread across a lot of numbers. So I would say if most teams, you know, the the top twenty get sixty percent of the of the of the salary. If you get me, you know, um, and and Leinster, I'd imagine it's being spread um, a lot further down into numbers because they lose so many players. So it's just it's something that's unique to them. There's not many teams that contribute as many players to an international side, um, and with the whole funding model here, that does take up a lot of your budget. But also, I would say. And it's a risky tactic, but to 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 not focus on being unbeaten in the Pro 14, um, and could you then use some of that budget uh, to go and get those really high-profile match winners um, that can help you in the knockout stages of Pro 14 if you have to go into a semi-final to get back to get into a final or whatever, and then obviously the the latter stages of Europe, and, and they cost money, uh, but they're invaluable. I mean, the reason those top-end players get paid so much is when the 
the um, the pressure's on, they come up with the goods. My point would be someone like Damien Delande is a perfect example. You watch him, you know, uh, certain weeks in the Pro 14, and he's not the dominant um, player you would expect. But then when you get to knockout stages, World Cup finals, you know, uh, big must-win games for Munster, he has that ability to step up. And I just think Leinster probably lacking a little bit of that um, at the moment uh, to add to the quality they already have. So when you're looking at a squad of, say, nearly 60 players used during a season, whatever the final number was, uh, do you think that Leinster maybe were blind to some of the things we were talking about? They obviously felt that was the right way to go. You know, that's what, been what they've been trying to do for the last couple of years. Have this enormous squad, but layers of players upon whom you can rely in the Pro 14. And you hope then that there's a kind of a conveyor belt effect whereby establishing themselves in the Pro 14, they're ready for that step up to European competition. But just based on what we've seen against La Rochelle, based on those couple of Saris games, maybe the answer is to go with a smaller squad. Like, I don't want to pick a number out of thin air, but focus more on um, a smaller nucleus of players. Bring in one or two guys that send you over the edge then from abroad that give you that extra sprinkling of something that maybe some of the guys in that middle tier don't have. It's, it's kind of delayering in a way, and that sounds kind of jarring when you're talking about people on contract and so on but that maybe that is the the way to take the next step for Leinster then yeah I, I, look at it, it's very it, it's it sounds incredibly harsh because their winning percentage is probably as high as any professional rugby team uh, but I I do believe that the the litmus test for this for Leinster is European um cups that's where they that's what they work so hard for that's what they um should be achieving not every year because it's incredibly difficult but um reasonably regularly and as I said they have the investment and they have the the uh the resources underneath the pathways etc to do it it's just a case of how you how you mix it up and I also don't think it would be a bad thing for some of those youngsters to play in teams that maybe struggle in a in a, in a domestic season now and again you know they I think they all look better than they actually are because of the whole uh, cohesion they have and uh, the overall level um and it's hard then to get a test of of how good they are um, and are they going to be become match winners or how are they going to deal with um, difficult situations kind of we, we highlighted about Ulster that when the pressure comes on they fold um, we don't really get to see a lot of those young Lancer players under pressure much although obviously the last couple of the last couple of months they lost to Ospreys in the end and they lost to, to Munster and Connacht so that's a bit of a change but in general they've had it kind of all their own way and I'm not sure that's the best way of um, of finding out a lot about them they say in terms of talent development that sometimes being stretched um is an important part of the whole process rather than just coasting so um yeah it might not work out to be a bad thing even though it's very hard to manufacture those type of situations one last one then on say prospective foreign signings or a marquee rocky elson type guy obviously scott fardy is going to be out of contract soon as well and Stuart lancaster was saying on off the ball i think that it is an option to go after a, a kind of an elson type We've seen, as you mentioned uh, a few minutes ago, the other provinces do this, and there's probably an element of the IRFU feeling as though they needed to do it. Certainly from Monsters' perspective, they want a challenge for trophies. They bring in two World Cup winners, two Springboks, and even in the off-season, just uh, as we're in it at the moment, they've uh, recruited Jason Jenkins, they've brought back Simon Zebo. Uh, like, Leinster are probably the team we've seen do it least. Do you think that is because of... Uh, 
what we might now describe as an over-reliance or an overconfidence in what they were producing internally or do you think there were maybe difficulties in getting some moves past the RFU because they were deemed to be so successful in what they were doing like where I don't there's surely not an aversion there to bring in bringing in quality players if you know what I mean so I'm wondering why yeah. they've been less likely yeah to we do don't it. know yeah we're not it's not transparent of whose fault it is you would imagine this is complete guesswork is that um they may be allowed bringing foreigners but then that the the um the downside of that is maybe they're then told to move somebody i i i don't know um to move somebody on to make space uh, because of the team ireland um uh, process so that's all i can guess i i don't think leinster um would be adverse to bringing them in um for sure especially if there's an area where there's a gap now there's not many gaps that's the problem like you're talking about very good players Leinster have have you know a lot of very good players um but like so i'd take Toulouse for example Toulouse and La Rochelle so we spoke about La Rochelle a few minutes ago and and their mix of players Toulouse have traditionally had the best academy in in Europe uh, or sorry in France uh, for 50 years really good community um with all the local clubs etc good good coaching in the academy a really good identity you know they went and signed Anton Dupont from Cast okay and they paid a big transfer fee to get him to come to Toulouse as a youngster and grow up with Emile Intimac who's came to their own academy um even Toulouse have Charlie Faumina uh tight head prop two Arnold brothers uh second second rows uh Jerome Kaino um in the back row with Elstat uh in terms of their two foreign back rows and uh, then they've Pete Aki and Cheslin Kobe so now look at you could say oh it's, it's cyclical and you know you don't need those type of players to to get the finals and maybe you don't but um you know I think that looking at Saracens looking at, at Racing um looking at La Rochelle now uh looking at Montpellier and Leicester you know they both have those points of difference from outside their own pathways to um to help them push on and uh I think maybe that's something that Leinster will will look at and, and, and try and address <laughs> Yeah, maybe you don't need them, but it kind of looks like you do. Uh, pleasure as always, Bert. Thank you. Thank you to everybody at home as well. Bernard and I are going to stick around for a few minutes and chat about that line selection in a little bit more detail for the 42 members, members not the 42.e. If you want to join us there, support our independent sports journalism, get all of the extra podcasts, including Gavin Cooney's Behind the Lines and so many more. Uh, until Monday, mind yourselves for members and we'll be back again for non-members on Thursday. Take it easy. I don't think we've met before, but I'm the referee on this field. Leinster could have me five mil a year, I wouldn't go. It is Tommy Moe! Robbie, Robbie, weekly. Then in the first pass, and he's oh! 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 Magic!